Welcome to the Prayer to Win podcast. I'm your host, Justin Oliver. Here with Dane Lee, we also have Jordan Jarrell on today. Today we're going to um, talk with Jordan a little bit about his history in powerlifting, um, his gym, his coaching, uh, get into some other things within the powerlifting community and uh, answer some questions that everyone had for us. Um, so we'll let Jordan kind of introduce himself, um, talk about you know where you've came from where you're at now in powerlifting how long you know your total things like that um and we'll get into talking about your gym a little bit and things like that so go ahead and introduce yourself uh like you said i'm jordan Darrell. i'm from uh georgetown kentucky uh the last meet i did was last meet in wraps i did i'll we'll leave with that one was in october uh where i finally hit a i think it was 2105 after all the kilo pounds and stuff were calculated in and my best lead total is 1890 it was a couple weeks after that but uh i've been competing since 2013 um the first meet i did was in a little tiny gym it was a little gym that we used to train at uh where i (laughs) I actually squatted 350 pounds and i benched whopping 330 so that was a nice little discrepancy that uh, people made fun of me for. Were while. you in the same same weight class back then, or <clears throat> no? When I started, I think I was. Uh, let me look it up here because I think I was. I, I know it was either one eighty or one seventy, and I can't honestly remember which one it was. But you competed in the the one eighty ones then. Something like uh, yeah. The first meet I did was I was one seventy one. So yeah. Yeah. So I was around one seventy ish. But the, uh, it's funny because the first meet I did was, well, the first sanctioned meet I did was the, uh, first beast of the bluegrass that Brandon Lilly put on. And, uh, so my dumb ass the night before stayed up and I played basketball from like seven o'clock to probably 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> we were just running full court all night. I, mean, I wasn't good at it, but I just liked to play. <clears throat> So then I woke up at four o'clock in the morning, drove three hours down there, and competed. That sounds like there was a, uh, Oh yeah. Uh, there, there was a girl that uh, was there. She had a she had a squat record at the time. It was Caitlin Trout. Uh, she looked at me. She's like, "You look like crap." I, was like, I just didn't really sleep real well. My legs are kind of sore. She's like, "You don't take this very seriously, do you?" I was like, <laughs> "Touche, touche." <laughs> So I actually had to use her belt and her knee sleeves that day because I didn't know one, and I was very small. But What'd you end up totaling that meet? <clears throat> uh, that meet was twelve oh five. It was like four twenty, three fifteen, and four seventy. What so was my last, that? Was the last time I pulled conventional in a meet. What was your? Uh... What was your next, you know, couple totals after that? Because I mean, that's that's pretty far to come from in the twelve hundreds to twenty one hundred. Um, was there a point when you know you started to see massive jumps in your total, or was it just kind of you know worked up the whole way? You know, each each time got a little bit better. Um, honestly, my first three, everything kind of jumped up pretty fast, and I honestly thought I was going to. Uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead. So. That meet, the Beast of Bluegrass, was in May of 2013. 
uh, that total was 12.05. You fast forward five months after that, and I told 15.14 in oh, October. Wow. Uh, and um, then I didn't compete again until September of 2014 because of uh, work and stuff. And that was the first meet I did in wraps. My first wrap total was 17.50. It was like 6.50, 4.40, and 6.60. Yeah. And... It, I mean, it got to the point in the training cycle where I was like, if I load the bar, I'm probably going to be able to do it. Uh, I had horrible bicep tendonitis, but I mean, you know, if I could lift the bar and then go home and not lift my kids up, so, you know. Was that, was, do you think that was just from, you know, like that girl said, you didn't take it serious? Was that, you think that's from, okay, now I'm going to take it a little bit more serious, have more structure to programming, actually sleep and eat, not do all the extra things, or was that... I did get to the point where I just followed my, I, I had a program, mm. uh, but it got to the point my where I was getting uh, way too arrogant during that rep, rep, to where I would literally just do my deadlifts and go home. Uh, and I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll come in and do my accessories like tomorrow or whatever, and tomorrow never came. Mm-hmm. So, and honestly, after that meet, I was like, oh, I pulled 660, I was like, 705 right around the corner. I didn't pull 705 <laughs> until um, uh, the, 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 2017, so yep. three yeah. years later. That's uh, kind of funny that you said that because I pulled, um, I just put it on my story today, five years ago today, I pulled 661 at 198, and I was thinking the same thing. I remember I posted, I like said it in, in one of my posts I talked about, like, Oh, 700 is going down and all this stuff soon. And all, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um, now, mind you, I got injured after that, but it took years to pull 700 after yeah. pulling 661. And I think a lot of people today, they watch the outliers that jump, like they might pull 650 and then they pull 700. And it's like soon they're at 750. And, you know, a lot of times it's these, uh, these little sumo pullers like this guy here. But, um, you know, it, it, people see these jumps of these outliers, and they're like, "Oh, I'm gonna, yeah." Six months from now, I'm adding 100 pounds to my deadlift. Like, fuck no, you're not. No, you're no. you're not. Unless you're one of those outliers, it's very rare to um, just be able to jump that much. So, um, yeah, unless, yeah, unless you were like remote, like really strong, and just pulling with absolute garbage form, and you were close. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. No, but yeah, that's but, I mean. Cool. I, so, yeah, those first three meets, I was I got a little too too arrogant there. I was like, oh, this this is gonna be pretty easy. I was like, my numbers are just gonna keep going up, you know, <laughs> like these big ass jumps, twelve oh five to fifteen ten, and from to seventeen fifty. I was like, sweet, yeah. Well, my next sleep meet was only like sixteen eighty five, and yeah. I missed my last deadlift. I pulled like six thirty five. Yeah. So between seventeen fifty. When did you hit, you know, and that was what, 2017, you said? Uh, no, 17? 1750 was 2014. So from 1750, when did you first hit 2000? Uh, 2018 in October. So, you know, I think that's something right there that a lot of people, you know, they might not understand. And, and when you hit that 1700, 1800 range, especially in the weight classes like me and him are in, like that 220, 242 area, 275s maybe, you know, um, some of those ridiculous 198s, it's probably going to take you a a lot longer. But um, just to add, you know, that extra 200 pounds, like it took him four more years 
to add that 250 pounds, which that's still a great mm-hmm. pace because, you know, I don't know how much you've looked this up, Jordan, but like, you know, in the 242 class, there's only about a hundred guys to ever hit 242 ever in the history of powerlifting. All right. And 220s, I imagine it's even less. It's probably 60 people, okay. you know, and it seems like everyone's hitting 2K now, but realistically, there's not that many. So I think what a lot of people, you know, they, they don't understand is when you get to those numbers of like in the 17, 1800s, things get a lot, a lot harder, you know, because oh, yeah. to hit uh, 1800, it means that, you know, just if you average it out, you're hitting in the upper 600s, let's say on the leg lifts, you know, because if you go seven, let's say seven, uh, seven and four, you know what I mean? That's 1800. Mm-hmm. So yep. you can average it out however you want, but you need to be at well into the sixes, well into the sixes, probably on both leg lifts and over 400 on the, on the bench. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that's just like every person off the street can do, you know, but yeah, um, I was actually looking here. Um, since you brought that up, I, it got me curious, and I literally have like open powerlifting saved all the time. And um, it's uh, there's 37 people in the 220s between raw and wraps that have totaled over 2,000 pounds. 37. And yeah, for damn. for people who don't know, I'm not sh- and, you know I'm not exactly sure how many 220s have ever competed, but um, oh, if wow. you if you go on the open powerlifting site or uh, Instagram, they, they put out something not long ago that uh, this was not long ago. This was probably about a year ago. Um, and it had, I think it was like the bench press, maybe like if you've ever benched in this area or um, I, I can look it up quick, but it was something like if you've ever benched this much or whatever, lifted this much, it was this percentage for the, um, number of people like you're in this percentile mm-hmm. you know, or whatever right and it said back then there was 203,000 total males that had ever competed in powerlifting and you know that was a year ago mm-hmm. so let's say if it's 240,000 you know and you break down the weight classes I mean a lot there's a lot of two, 220, 242 is the most competitive weight classes there is okay. so no doubt um, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, and the number of competitors in those two are just it's insane. So let's just say that forty thousand of those have been in the two twenties. Mm-hmm. Thirty seven have ever hit two k. Yeah. So that's an impressive number, you know. And, I, and again, I know it seems like two k is dropping every other day, but it's really not. It's the same. It really pe- it's the like same it. people hitting it, but yeah, yeah. And then you'll have like your outliers that are like, oh, this is my first meet at two seventy five. I totaled like. 2,050 pounds, and I went three for nine or something stupid. Yeah. So, like, I found out that post. So, Jordan, would you bench? You bench 530? 534. Okay. So, in this is all weight classes, all feds, you know, everything worldwide, total, ever in powerlifting. And again, this post was from, um, I'm sorry, it wasn't a year ago, but it was in, oh, it was almost a year ago, June of 2020 um so it's it's you know decently old post here but uh so he's in the top 0.3 percent of all bench pressers to ever be in powerlifting there's only in again it seems like a lot but like 2000 people 2019 back then people had hit uh 500 to 549 bench press so over 500 and capped out at 549 so to, it, when you put it in the ratios like that, it's like, okay, so 
he's in the top 0.3% of strong people. We're not talking Joe down the road who just right. lifts. We're right. talking people that actually try to compete and do this. So, like, I hate when people will say, you know, oh, if you're not benching over 500, you're not strong. Or if you're not benching over, you know, even 400 is, like, the top uh, – if you're 400 to 449, that's a top 3.9% to ever compete in powerlifting. You know, yeah, so those numbers really make me wonder, like, how many people actually knew somebody in high school that benched 500 pounds. Yeah, well, it's like yeah. I, I, you know, and I, I remember when I was a freshman, we had two Haas seniors. These just, just genetic freaks, yeah. you know. Um, just, I mean, the one was like Doughboy, just big big fullback he was like 240 pounds mm-hmm. and the other one he was a lineman that was only like 220 215 but he was just short and just i mean massive dude for being like in high school like yeah. big shoulders and all that shit and i watched these guys they both benched 405 and 415 like i don't know whatever happened to him i, I saw the one um years ago he went on to play college football that fullback i think he said he got into like the upper 400s and bench but okay. he didn't really try to push it and it's like, yeah. imagine like a guy like that is the, um, the outliers that do come out in powerlifting that bench 600, 700 pounds, mm-hmm. you know, because they already were doing it from a young age. But think of how many of those there have been, you know, there's only, oh. um, yeah, I love open powerlifting, but there's only, oh, I'm find stupid numbers to look up all the time. It's like, oh. how many people have done this and that, whatever. Yeah. Well, there's all, you know, there's a hundred, it says there's 120 people that bench 600 to 649 ever. And if you look it up, a lot of them were actually back in like, uh, what, the, the, eight, the 80s and 70s. Oh, and yeah, yeah it's kind of, there's some dude that's got like every bench press record from like 198 up, I think, to 242. I think, is that that McDonald guy or I forget, his, uh, who was it? Is it Tom? Yeah. Tom McDonald? Tommy McDonald? Yeah, something like something that. Something like that. I'm getting, I'm getting ready to look. Yeah, but it's like these dudes back in, in, you know, a lot of people have tried to figure out why and and things like that. Um, But these guys back then, I think the culture back then was a little bit different, too. If you talk to a lot of the old older lifters and I'm not talking the grungy like I'm a power lifter guy. I'm talking about like the old just meathead that he ate good food. He was, you know, um, these guys were jacked, too. And they focused a lot more on reps and things back then. Like they they were as much about looking good. And I think they relied less on drugs. Mm-hmm. They were trying to be a little bit more healthy. And then that got lost in like, I feel like a lot of the lifters from like the nineties, it was like, yeah, it was push more drug, eat McDonald's and go lift, you know? So, but yeah, the, a lot of those dudes from back then were pretty impressive. Um, if you ever look at Doug Young, like, I feel like every grown man should probably want to look like Doug Young when they grow up. Well, that's, that's the thing is uh, a lot of – it's weird how the culture has changed because there are a lot of lifters now who want to be, like, skinnier, leaner, like, smaller. Like, they want to look like they're ready to, like, go to the beach while they're trying to power lift. And I'm not saying, like, power lifters need to be fat and unhealthy, but it's like, you, you know, Dan Green, like, no skinny champions. What he means by that is, like, you need to fucking eat – you need to build yeah. and you need to like have some muscle mass to you. Mm-hmm. Now there are outliers like and that's based on leverages. If you look at, um, especially for like deadlifting, you look at like, uh, Kayla Woolen was like, I mean, he looked, if, if back when he pulled what, 880 
at 198, I think, is his record or something. He looked like a beanpole. Yeah, like if, if this guy came up to you and was like, yeah, I pull 880, you would laugh at him and be like, no, you don't, <laughs> you know. But, he, you know, his leverages allowed it. And, and what people don't understand is, like, your body structure and your leverages can account for so much. It's, yeah. um, you know, it's it, the big meathead down the road. I know a couple of them. Like, these guys can barely deadlift 500, but I've seen, like, guys that look like they don't lift pull 700, 800, yeah. you know? It's, um, your leverages go a long way. Your body structure, ligaments, tendons can go a long way mm-hmm. in lifting, and that's why we always harp on technique. So, um, you know, to kind of go off of that, you know, Jordan also, um, you, when did you start coaching people, like, officially? Like, you started charging and, and things like that? Because I know, like, he's had some lifters that have done pretty well. Um, I think I actually started uh, 2019. I'd helped a couple people for like free and stuff like that beforehand, but I just didn't tell anybody because I was really self-conscious about it. I was like, I don't want people to think that I know what I'm doing or whatever. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. It was weird. And then in 2019, I was like, you know what? Most of the people I've helped have actually made a lot of progress, so uh, we just kind of took it from there, and it... Uh, yeah, it, it, it got it was a little slow to start, but then it just kind of word of mouth through them, and then actually having people compete and actually do really well uh, has helped a whole lot. Uh, I think the highest total we have right now is George, and that was at nineteen eighty something uh, from your gym. Mm. Uh, they uh, and me. And then, when he had when he hit that, wasn't that a that was a pretty sizable PR, wasn't it? Um, uh, yeah, I gotta look at. I know. So I think he hit that meet. That, I don't know if that was his last meet, but the meet that we did together in Kentucky, I think, I thought he totaled like maybe nineteen hundred or so. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, he he was he should have probably hit two grand on both of those days, but he didn't. No. Uh, the meet that you did with him, it was a 1973 total. He went 788, 429, and 755. And then up at uh, Live Large, he went 826, 485. And he got his opening deadlift at 677. Yeah, his hand tore. That's what it was. I remember he, he came yeah. up. That thing was nasty, too. So I, I don't blame him for not being able to kind of no, grip I mean, that I, thing. I told, I told him for like four weeks. I was like, dude, shave your calluses down. They yeah. look terrible. And I kid you not, we were there. I was there that morning. I was wrapping him for eight twenty six, and I look up. He's picking at his hand. Yeah. I'm like, what are you doing? No. He goes. I'm, he's like, I'm picking at this uh, callus. Is like to give the bar something better to hold on to. What? If, why are oh, you doing gosh. that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, so it, it ripped him clean open. Yeah. It was damn. It's pretty nasty. But um, yeah, and I know some of the the females um have came a pretty long way, and I I think. You know, a lot of people um, that have came to you from what I've seen personally is like the the technique change. And then I know that you could probably speak of it more is like the lifestyle change. It feels I feel like a lot of them have bought into coaching and bought into powerlifting more from coming to you and actually getting the guidance. Because, you know, if not, they're the dumbass who uh, goes and plays basketball all night the day before the meet, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, um, I think that. You know what I've seen is a lot of people are starting to be uh, take it a little more seriously, and their totals are are talking from it. So um. that's about what, what I've been trying to do. Is like I thought 
I'll, I'll catch people all the time. They'll put, uh, like, I'll have, like, five by six on, like, tempo benches. And, you know, nobody likes to do tempo benches. It's not no. fun. Yeah. not fun to post. But, I mean, it pays off after a bit. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> he put on his story uh, two days ago. It was, like, a single at 315. I was like, I don't remember writing that. I went and looked. I brought his sheet up, and I was like, I could play uh, week one through four. It was like, nothing's going above, like, 250. So, I mean, you know, Jim, I was like, I don't remember writing that. He goes, yeah, Steve said you'd say that. I, uh, he's like, everything was feeling really good. And I was like, yeah, don't do that again. Like, yeah, no. that's and and sometimes that's the influence of wherever they're working out. Like I have, um, and I have, a lot of people follow the structure, and I, I love my clients for that. Like they don't go off things too much. They play it smart. Mm-hmm. Something doesn't feel right that day. They might down a little bit. They might give a five pound bump, ten pound pump here, here and there. That's not going to affect too much uh, for most of the more experienced athletes, especially. Um, but I'll see the comments. Like I know a guy that I'm working with, um, George. It's like his bench is flying right now and we could easily push up and he he could probably hit 15 20 pounds above that and you'll see guys that comment they don't understand like i had him hit a single you know at like 305 or whatever Mm -hmm. and we backed down worked a little bit of volume he's in that phase we're not peaking he doesn't have a meet anytime soon nothing like that we're just working the blocks and you'll see people come in and like every time he hits like a bench press they'll say oh you you could have done you know 315 you could have done 325 like and they mean he should have like actually done it that day and he'll tell me like guys will tell him like why don't you go up like the the point isn't to kill yourself every day in training and that only hinders your recovery so um, that's kind of like my philosophy is i try not to bury my clients in every training session Mm -hmm. Um, especially if we're even in a volume phase like sure the percentages might be low but I don't need an RP 10 on every single lift that you do. Right. Pushing, grinding every you know last couple reps out and stuff. So yeah, you still have to be able to make progress and make it the next week. Like I mean, yeah. if you're still crippled from last week's squat workout. Probably not gonna do so well today. No, <laughs> and it cuts. And what people don't realize, it, then it, then it cuts your time in the block down. So if it's week two and your client is grinding shit out already, and there's someone who typically runs you know four weeks on one week off or some people can even push like some of the females can go five weeks or whatever um and it's week two and they're buried that's it's not good you're gonna have to that you cut the cycle early you have to deload them and it's it's not wasted cycle but now how long does it take to come back from that fatigue when you could have just built for time you know so i was just gonna say I, i just started to um i don't actually plan people's deloads anymore unless they're in like deep rip um, like I had a guy, Donnie, he came off of shoulder surgery and I think we went like four or five months without a deload just because we were working everything so light. Mm-hmm. I basically just ran him up until he was like, Hey, today, like, you know, it was a fairly regular day. I think it was like a three by five or something. He's like, Hey, today felt pretty, pretty rough. He's like, last week was super easy. This week was yeah. really hard. I was like, cool. Time for a deload. It's been yeah. like four months. It's like. Little light deload next week and just run it again. Yeah, so so you're you're looking more at just kind of like what's our RP factors, things like that, and you you work it up until that fatigue starts to build, and you feel like okay, now's the time to deload. Or like in that case, I've had people that were kind of similar. They're coming back from things, or um, I just had a girl. She had um, uh, a nostril nasal path surgery or whatever where she wasn't allowed to put pressure in for a couple of weeks and lift heavy so coming back from that you know we went like 
six, seven weeks, you know, before we ever even thought about like, okay, maybe deload, you know, and, and yeah. it's because those weights are so light. Like this is a girl that squats, you know, up in the mid 300s, she pulls in the mid 300s and um, her bench is in the upper 100s. And it's like, she came back and she was benching 110. You know, and she yeah. was squatting uh, 135 and things like that. So it's like there's those cases where, like, we can continue to work and we can undulate things to where we don't have to take a full deload. Right. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, I don't want to get too far off because I want you to be able to ask your question. But there are, like, people that will do, um, for example, like when I was coached by Josh Bryant, it was no matter what, a three to one. It, mm-hmm. it was three weeks on, one week off. While that helped and worked most of the time, there were times that I could push to probably four weeks, five weeks Mm -hmm. in certain phases. And I know like Trevor's good about that now. Like if I, like I just got out of a four to one and before we were running more three to ones and sometimes I get a four to one, but it's like, I might even be able to push to a five to one, but being an old ass and just, (laughs) whereas, you know I mean? We're probably not going to ever push it there, but who knows? But um, yeah, go ahead and ask your question, Dan. I wanted to ask because you started off the conversation talking about how you went and played basketball for four hours, show up and have somebody call you out and say, you don't take this very seriously. Later on, you were saying that at the one meet you were dealing with bicep tendonitis. So I wanted to ask about like issues and injuries that you might be dealing with now, currently dealing with, but it sounds like at some point, there was a transition in the mindset of where you did start to take care of that, where you didn't put accessories off until tomorrow. And when you talk about calling out some of the athletes that you have for doing things that they don't need to be doing, when you're like, no, no, don't do that again. A lot of times the best coaches have been the worst offenders. Where is that something that you did experience? And if you did, how did you learn from it? What was that process of learning from it and transitioning? So. I, and my, my friend Jason will literally remind me of this all the time. I went and did a meet. Um, I hadn't been in wraps in probably a year and a half, maybe two. Yeah, two years. And uh, I went in and my squad had went to, I mean, it just went completely to shit. I, and going, when I showed my new chiropractor some of my old squads, he literally cringed. He's like, those are horrible. Uh, I couldn't go through a squat workout without having like debilitating like knee tendonitis. Uh, I worked at a factory at the time and I would literally go in. Uh, we would squat on Saturdays. So I would wake up, I would drive two and a half hours to go squat and then uh, we would go back to work on Monday. Well, I would spend Monday through Thursday at work just trying to do like a standing leg curl at work to try and get my like hamstrings moving or whatever. And I yeah. couldn't move my leg more than like this far without my knee feeling like it was about to rip off. It, it was in that much pain. Uh, so up, in, up until I started going to the chiropractor that I go to now, mm-hmm. I didn't really do a whole lot uh, preventative wise just because I didn't really know what to do at the time. Uh, you know, I think we foam rolled and we do couch stretches or whatever. And as much as I hate to couch stretch, it fixes a lot of leg issues. I was just lazy to do them. Um, but I mean, I did I did this meet. And it was like I think I squatted like 625 in wraps. I benched like 455, and I pulled 645. And my friend Jace was there. He was talking to me. He's like, "You had a pretty good meet." I was like, "Yeah, I think I'm gonna start trying now." Apparently, <laughs> the way I worked. Um, and 
and then you fast forward like five months later, and, and I totaled 18.45 and squatted like 670. I benched like 500, and I pulled 672 or something like that. And uh, he's like, yeah, I, I'll never forget you literally looking at me and just saying, yeah, I think I'm going to try now. He's like, it was the most annoying thing I've ever heard in my life. And, but I, from there on, I actually stuck to my program. I had started doing all of my accessories that I was supposed to do instead of just doing all the bench ones. Um, Why that moment? Why then? Because I went down 25 pounds on my squat and it had pissed me off. <laughs> okay. Because uh, I, I, I thought, I was like, well, I've already squatted 650 in wraps. I was like, I can't go backwards in it. No, 625 about took me out that day. That was all I had. And uh, it was just, what was it? I, I kind of attribute it to that meet was kind of like the first time I pulled 405. Because when I first pulled 405, I was like, oh, okay, I actually like getting stronger. I think I want to see how far I can push this. Mm -hmm. That meet was kind of like, okay, I know I can make progress, but I have to actually put in work on everything other than just benching because everything else is kind of at that level where I have to start doing everything I'm supposed to do. Now, you know, just squatting, benching, and deadlifting is only going to get you so far until all the little muscles that you need to kick in and help just aren't really there yeah, right when it's kind of interesting when you're talking about those numbers because um you know you can go ahead and, and yeah I'm, I'm gonna get these numbers wrong so you can correct me but it's like in, in my opinion and i think my opinion is fucking right so if you don't you know, if you don't think the same thing then i don't know what to tell you but um in my opinion like in the 220 class you and ranson lee are the two most and throughout all of powerlifting these are two of the most well-rounded powerlifters in the game okay like he's you know jordan here what you, you squat 790 range yeah, um, 793 or something 793 like that. benched 534 and your pulls what 777 yeah so you look at those numbers and it's like he's not relying on just one stand you know he's he, deadlifts 900 and then the rest is just you yeah. know what i mean like if you look at the numbers they're fairly even and then you you know you start to look at like his leverages and things like that like sure his his deadlift like he's got longer arms it's going to save him a little bit and be in you know his height and things um but then that should affect him a lot on bench right because those long arms and mm -hmm. things but he's found a way to get around that and you know build build that bench up obviously so um, it's just kind of funny that, like, you know, w w you had your deadlift laggering a little bit there, and then since then it's kind of came up. Your bench has came up. Um, so a lot of lifters, like, they get discouraged. And I I've been there before where I've been discouraged because my deadlift was great. Yeah, well, it, as far as me, mm -hmm. my deadlift was great for me. My bench was, you know, not bad, and then my squat sucked. And now I feel like I'm getting to that point where I'm like, okay, everything's kind of on an even plane. Starting to level things so, out. you know, it, it, everything's not linear. Don't expect like every lift is just going to keep rocketing up. Right. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand that. But then on the flip side, like don't rely on one lift. Like if deadlift's your thing, you know, I don't think that like you should train primarily deadlift and fuck your you, – you see people do that. Oh, let's train the deadlift all the time. Forget the squat. The squat will come up because my deadlift's getting stronger or – or they'll think vice versa. Oh, I'll just squat. My deadlift will be strong. For some people, that might work. But for a lot of people, it's not going to. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
want to ask you another question because we're talking about the number increases. You talked about the mindset shift where you decide, all right, now I'm going to try. If you look at a bad training day, in your opinion, uh, now versus a bad training day, let's say uh, three years ago, what what is a bad training day? And what does that look like to you now? My meeting December was a bad day and it's still like, as I had to tell myself this a million times, an 1890s lead total still tied me for like 30th in the world at, at 220. Um, so I, I kind of had to tell myself that, you know, I think there was another one I had a meet and uh, um, yeah, <clears throat> I did the Iron Dogs meet in, uh, in uh, 2019. Yeah, 2019. Uh, it was like a 1960 total, which was it, it was right after my 2033 total. So I was pretty pissed, but I had to tell myself, it's like, okay, you literally went from your last warm-up was 495, and you immediately had to go and take your over in 705 and squats on the platform. There were 12 lifters that day. We timed it. There was like five minutes between each video of my attempts. So I was like, you know, 1960 at one point was a 60-pound PR that I hit from I went 1901 to 1967, so I was like, even on a bad day, I'm doing what it took me an entire fret to do on a perfect day. Yeah, yeah. and so, on a on a bad day, his you know your warm ups are better than your total three years ago. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, because I know this is something Justin and I talk about a lot with clients. Where I mean, it's it's the flip side of what you guys were saying earlier where all oh, I'm having a really good day I feel fantastic why don't I push it why don't I do more and the really bad day whatever that is for people where they're like oh this is stupid I'm giving up I can't believe it's it's all going to shit mm-hmm. it's done but hearing somebody who is as successful as you are having not just having bad days but how you have the right mindset to get through that I think is really helpful it takes a lot to stress me out uh, a, bunch, a bunch of my friends kind of make fun of me and say that things kind of roll off me like water off of the duck's back and it can get kind of frustrating to my fiance and some other people when they're trying to give me crap um, I mean I, I don't know how to I attribute most of it to the stress of my job really is just for, from 2008 to 2015 I think I was like laid off more than I, was, I actually worked so I kind of just got into a mindset of today's going to be whatever it's going to be. So, you know, I mean, I think right before that, the 2105 meet, I actually missed a 530-pound bench three times a week out. And uh, my training partner was looking at asking me, all oh, the, the, he's like, is anything hurting? Does, uh, or my handoffs crap or whatever? I was like, no, I was like, it's just a week out. I'm just not going to hit it today. It's like, mm-hmm. not a big deal. I was like, I doubled 515 last week. He's like, I'm not really too worried about it. He's like, yeah, but you're a week out. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, it'll, I mean, I'm literally a week out. I was like, I highly doubt I would have been able to press this, you know, outside of a meet regardless. Like, you take into account how much fatigue you're going to drop off between then and the meet. Mm-hmm. And the adrenaline from meet day, I was like, it, it'll be fine to meet day. I was like, I'm really not yeah. worried about one training session. Yeah, I yeah. think that comes with experience and then also like certain personalities, but it takes time to understand that and to like 
you know, one, you, some people just have that personality, but then also like it, it takes time to understand that. I think, I think it comes from the experience of competing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I posted on that not long ago too, almost the same thing where like, yeah, your squat video. Yeah, my squat. God, the thing was like horrendous, and it was like four weeks out or whatever. And it was only six seventy five, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. what the fuck? Like, and it, well, and the thing was is like six fifty, I think I six fifty five. Um, I took before that, and in the prior sessions, like it didn't move great either. I'm like, what? You know, like I blew up seven hundred last prep. You know, before I went to squat on the platform what's going on you know this and that i kept trying to figure it all out and like um i didn't realize like well i did realize like i had fatigue i had some elbow issues so like you know there's a little bit of technique flaws and things in there next week i came back i cleaned it up it moved pretty quick and that gave me some confidence Mm -hmm. but literally on meet day i had no fucking clue what i was going to squat i was like you know six i think 639 was my opener 683 was my second and honestly like I was thinking if I hit 683 for the prep I had, like I'll fucking take it. That helps mm-hmm. build the total. And like I posted the seven six or seven eleven I took versus the six seventy five. <laughs> it's like you know to make that jump, and it still was that was the only squat in the meet where I was like, oh shit, I have some weight on my back. I need to yeah. make sure I squat this thing, and it still moved quick. So mm-hmm. it's like um, bench, same thing. Like I've had elbows flare up to where I have only taken um like two real lifts over 400 you know i'll bench like 424 and then like maybe i hit 440 or 450 and then the meet i i benched for uh what i bench 468 you know three weeks later and um you know like this last meet i had some issues with it and then the bench caught up and i hit a bench pr on the platform 474 Mm -hmm. so um you know, the difference I think is once you gain that experience, you get more confident, and you understand the the game more. You understand like when this fatigue drops off, I'm gonna fucking annihilate anything anyway. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's very interesting um, to to get up to those levels too. It's like you're compounding so much more fatigue than when you were lifting and squatting 500 and pulling 500 and oh, benching yeah. 300 or whatever. So it's like that hinders you even more so you need to recover even more heading into the meet you know but um that that kind of brings me to like our first question um that i wanted to kind of get into was um you know speaking on mentality and they wonder like how it can affect your progress and how to keep that mentality i think we kind of answered how to keep it um But, like, if you aren't confident in what you're doing, the biggest thing is confidence, knowing that you can lift the weight, knowing that you can follow the diet, knowing that you, you're going to have a routine, like, I'm going to eat at this time, I need to eat at this time, and having that structure through your days as much as possible. The more structure, the better. And then knowing if that structure, like, oh, my God, I missed my lunch, my lifts are going to be like, shit, no, it's not, doesn't, doesn't work that way. Um, making sure your sleep's on point. Um, and then if you have a bad training day, understanding there's a lot of things that go into that day. Um, you know, I had a lifter come talk to me the other day. Um, not just one of the weightlifters. It wasn't one of uh, the powerlifters that, you know, was nervous because there's a meet coming up and things haven't been moving well and stuff like that. And I, I had to remind her, like, you're compounding a lot of fatigue and it's supposed to feel this way 
you know, a week yeah. and a half out from a meet. You're supposed to feel a little off. You're supposed to feel like, oh my God, like I'm, especially in weightlifting because they're working with those those limit weights a little bit more often heading into mm-hmm. their meat their because it's dynamic. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, you guys can speak more on just the mentality and, um, you know, how to keep it and what you guys might do that, that helps you keep going, you know, so. Jordan, go ahead. Uh, I, I don't really, I, I know that the last, I, I've always told myself that my goal is to make my training harder than the meat. That way when I get to meet day, it's just like an easier training day, just more of a max attempt day. Um, but I've also told myself that you are not going to feel good the last four to five weeks of a prep. You're just not. It's never going to happen. Yeah, everything might move really well, but I mean, as far as like human being-wise, I feel like garbage. Mm-hmm. I'm really good at sitting down with weight on my back and standing up laying down and pressing weight off of me and picking weight up off the floor. I'm not good at running short distances. Don't I hope to God my dogs don't get out of my, my fence and I have to go catch them <laughs> because they'll be gone forever. Um, you know, it's just like little tiny things. Like, you know, you get really bad lower back bumps towards the end of meat prep for obvious reasons. Um, and But the, it, it's a fun parallel because I'm like that. Whereas Jess over here will worry about every little thing. Like the last four weeks, she was her first meat prep that I did for I think every week was a PR. I'd write down something like, I want you to do a set of three by three. And I'd go to work and she would sneak out there in the garage and deadlift when I was gone. And she's like, well, the first three were really easy. So I turned into a set of nine. I'm just sitting here like pounding my phone against my head. <laughs> But then you get to the like last three or four weeks where I'm like, all right, heavy doubles, heavy single, two doubles or two singles. And they're not moving as fast as the set of nine did that she compounded. And she's like, ah, I just, you know, and like I had, I had her set to end at like 340 pounds or something like that, her first meet. And, um, which is kind of around where she ended, but I never had her hitting really really heavy squats like 320 330-ish I think I had her doing like a double with like 315 or something so she went to Iron Mafia one day without me because uh, I had to work and I think she was scheduled to do like 290 or 300 for a single and she text, She actually made Mark text me and said hey your girlfriend had a really good uh, squat day today she hit what'd you do 315 for 3 And she did what I wrote down originally, and then she did like 315. Then she did like 315 for like two or something. She's like, I just needed to feel something heavier. And I was like, that's all point of the But But she worded it out. She explained it to me. It's like the way she lives compared to the way I live. Like the heaviest squat I took for 2100 was 770, and my third squat was 790. So I'd never unracked anything over 770 at that point. Hell, I'd never unracked anything over like 750 before that 770 attempt. Um, but she has to actually feel something heavier. So like heavier walkouts and stuff like that work good for her. Whereas I think they're a waste of time because I'm like, I'll, I'll just wait till me. It's like, I'm going to unrack 800 pounds. It's probably going to feel like 800 pounds. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Um, but I mean, then I have other, I've got other lifters who are like, um, the Donnie guys come back from surgery. He, uh, 
he's normally a three meter rat guy. This entire prep, we took him up. Uh, he's squatted like six fifty for a two by one in sleeves, and he's like, dude, I've never squatted above like five fifty in sleeves before. You know, he's just like, it honestly didn't feel as bad as he thought. It's just you know, I, I some people have the mindset that they can wade out into the deep end of the pool and they're going to end up where they're going to end up. And then some people freak out the second their feet start to not touch ground anymore. So it's, yeah. you know, you've like got to kind of figure out who you've got at the time and, and just try to adjust accordingly. Yeah. I like the, uh, when you said you make practice harder than the meets mm-hmm. in order to help you out with mindset, that's something that the coaches I've worked with in my sport, they, we push that a lot where the meet should be like 80% of what you practice because you need to know that you always have that much in reserve when you go there because something is going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's going to, um, for gymnastics, like you're going to be on a floor that doesn't feel the same. It gives you more or less than you're used to the equipment that they have on something else. The mats are off. You don't have as much time. You don't have food, anything. So having that little buffer zone for us is really comforting. It takes a lot of pressure off you, but in practice, those like two, three weeks leading up to whatever competition you're going to, especially for nationals, you feel like you've f- completely forgotten your sport. Mm-hmm. Everything is so tired. You don't know how to do anything. You're getting pissed off because you can't land things. You can't do skills. You have no technical ability and body awareness as you're going through stuff. And you're like, this is useless. I should just quit. There's no way I'm going to be able to compete. Mm-hmm. And as you taper off on that and all that, proprioception body awareness comes back because like you said you have so much accumulated fatigue neurologically that once that comes back all of a sudden not only is everything there but everything feels really easy to do plus you know jordan like you were saying you add on the adrenaline of being in that situation and sometimes you really have to pull back on it but it's not till you go through that process a couple of times with that experience like you said Mm -hmm. and know how to kind of take that day by day and practice by practice that you don't freak out because, I mean, I've been in that situation where I was talking to a coach going into a major competition, and I was like, I can't do what we have programmed. I know we've been practicing this for months. I'm not doing anything, and I haven't been able to do it for, like, two weeks. What do I do? And he's like, just wait. And, like, lo and behold, like, once you get through that fatigue management portion, yeah. stuff starts coming back, and yeah. it feels great. That's that's how a lot of new lifters are, too. They're like, they're scared because oh my god this feels heavy and like you're telling them like you're gonna hit this at the meet and they're like think you're full of shit yeah and, but you've seen it so many times and they mm-hmm. go in the meet um and you know i love people's like first meet sometimes second meet depending on like how they are um when they'll they'll hit these lifts and it's like grindy and like then in the meet they absolutely destroy it and they're like what the hell oh my god <laughs> you know they're like they light up and everything and that's you know some of these lifters that have had that have went like you know nine for nine their first meet and like destroyed everything i'm like there you go that's you your point of your first meet was to learn to hopefully hit some platform prs if you get them you know what i mean and that's it's a fun day then mm-hmm. so i i've had people um i used to take people through a peaking block and we would take it was uh, i learned it from when i worked with sweet uh, burns on his fist set stuff is like we work up to a kind of a fatigue training max after about 12 or 15 weeks and then we just kind of work backwards to the meat from there, and you're dropping fatigue as you go. So that's just as an example, uh, it'd be like you know max out week, and then the next one would be like 95-ish percent week. Then you have like an 80 percent week, and then you have um, a really 
July is basically your deload week of the meat. Well, people weren't understanding why they weren't hitting like openers a week or two out or whatever. And I'm just like, there's a million different ways to skin a cat. It's peaking. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. I was like, but you also don't have to be stuck in the mindset of, okay, it's a week out. I have to hit my opener on squat bench deadlift this week. And, yeah. you know, two weeks out, I should be hitting like my heaviest deadlift or whatever. It's not, I, yeah, it's I, not always I, like I can that. I can tell you four preps in a row where I missed my last heavy deadlift session and still deadlift the art at me. Yeah. Uh, I literally, I remember when, when I told 2033 at Beast of the Bluegrass the first time, I pulled 749 at me. I kid you not, I could not get 725 to come off the floor in my garage. And I tried it at least three or four times. It just wasn't going. Yeah. And I just said, eh, I'll get it to me. Yep. You, you chalk it up to a loss. It's not, it's not a huge, you're already beat to death by that point. Yeah. The yeah only you're not, not going to get any stronger. That point is just to, it's mostly just for a mentality of lifters that literally need to see it. But I mean, you're, you're supposed yeah. to open line up where you're not going to mess your day up. Yeah. Yeah. There's not, there, like you said, there's not just one way to do it. Cause I've, mm-hmm. I've done uh, prep, you know, since I started piloting almost every different way, you know, it seems like at least like I've hit the openers a week out, you know, and I've also um, hit something heavy at like three weeks out. And then from there, it's all pretty much like on a squat. And then that's all warm ups on the way in, you know, and I, that's that meat I squatted 700. It was like I hit my heaviest three weeks out. Two weeks out was like basically a last warm up. One week out was like I was squatting like 300 on the bar or something, you know, nothing, basically nothing. Mm-hmm. And then went in and squatted 700 and it flew you know so um yeah there's a lot of different ways to do it um, i think the only thing i'm literally set in stone in is that i will not lift after the meet if the meet's on saturday i will not lift after that monday like if i've got to come in and hit like a really light training session i'll do it either on sunday or monday mm-hmm. but i absolutely refuse to lift tuesday through friday of that of that week that's it do you do i had one coach i had one coach percent day on like Wednesday of the meet, and I was like, I'm not doing that. No, no. Not, yeah, I would. I mean, that that's like sounds like the USAPL lifters that <laughs> that do that or like take a yeah. heavy heavy double or something on Tuesday. Like, wait, what? But um, no. yeah, the uh, do you do any like blood flow work going into that last week? Like, do you go like? Even like cables, bands, like something, maybe squat, squat the bar, like anything through that week. I'll, I'll take my uh, hip circle and like one of my red bands home. Yeah. And I'll my band pull apart, and I'll do I'll go through like most of my mobility stuff that week. Mm-hmm. But I found that honestly, just like going through all my mobility that week. Yeah. Keeps me loosened up to the point where I'm able to actually move on Saturday. And another yeah. thing that I do every meet prep is the Wednesday before my meet. I always schedule a session with my chiropractor and go in and get him to beat the crap out of me. Mm. And um, he normally gets everything back in line. Um, but so I'll do that and I'll just go through all my mobility and just try to keep everything moving. Um, but other than that, no, I literally do not want to be in a gym that entire week. Yeah. Just because I'm normally so tired by that point. It's like I just want to sit at the house, rest, drop as much fatigue off as humanly possible and just eat and like I said, just try to stay moving. Yeah, that's and that's you know different 
different things for everyone. I I know like um, you know I've done it again many many different ways. My favorite is like I'll go in and I'll move under the bars very light, and this is what I have a lot of my clients do. Like it's very light under the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, depending who they are, they might not deadlift um, after like I might have them pull like something on Sunday, um, six days out. But like, and I'm talking extremely light, yeah. but. Um, you know, some people it's like, especially if they're newer, I want that pattern to stay there. So I might have them do like something at like 40%, 50% range mm-hmm. on a Wednesday, maybe, you know, and it's not much. It might just be like a couple reps or whatever and a couple reps to work up to that, you know, just keep a pattern there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, pretty much like for myself, it's everything's 50% or less, just real light move around. Cause if I don't move around and, and especially like Wednesday, Thursday, I like to get, I call it a warm up to a workout. Mm-hmm. And I put this in a lot of my clients' um, things. It's like warm up like you were going to do an SBD day. So get like the okay. back, you know, back warmed up, get your shoulders warmed up, legs warmed up, everything as kind of a casual warm up of what you would normally do. And then you're done. Maybe, mm-hmm. you, you know, work mobility a little bit or something. Um, and that that's it. It's pretty much it's a blood flow, like 15 minute thing in mobility you're done for the you know you're done for the week yeah. unless you want to move around a little bit because some people tighten up quick so yeah you know you got to kind of know that for yourself like me if i sat around or didn't lift or didn't move through the whole week like i i would tighten up pretty quick yeah so i know that about myself so i know i need to keep kind of moving um but yeah there's there's many different ways to do it so um next question we had um I'm supposed to ask you <laughs> who is your strongest son um, at, at, who, yeah, that, that came from Taylor. Who is your strongest son? Um, but also, they she was wondering about the RPS rumors if they're true. So I wanted to kind of talk about that. Now we have Jordan on twos. Um, you know, as far as where we're at in the process, like, you know, we got cleared through the RPS. Um, we're gonna start running meets in the fall. Um, you know, we're going to be getting our equipment together and it'll be ran a lot. Uh, like what, if you've done iron mafia meets, it's kind of going to be the same thing. Um, of course, like we have our own personality to it, obviously and our own, you know, thing that we'll come out with, but, um, you know, we're trying to keep everything the same in the warm up area as a platform. Um, you know, I know for, for what we're thinking, or at least, you know, what we've talked about is like, we're, we're running the meet basically how we would like it to be at a meet um and of course we're gonna fuck up you know and things are gonna start slow we're not gonna be overly fancy or anything and um the meets will might get bigger as we go and we might keep them a little bit smaller we don't really you know we'll have to see as we go um but anything you want to add to kind of what i'm talking about um i just know that we're gonna make, I know we we talked about making sure that the the mono and the bench on the platform were as new as possible. Yeah, we were gonna yeah. have ample enough uh, ones in the warm up room. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people. I know at least people are gonna know that they're not gonna come to our meets and lift on shitty bars because I mean we're both bar for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, and that's what I feel like that comes into my gym is I spent more money on bars than I did everything yeah. else in there. And then the nice thing is like. You know, we both um, have talked about like Iron Mafia. Like they, for most of their meets, they would have a set of kilos in the warm up room for the heavier lifters. So we'll have that. Um, my ultimate plan would be nice to have to where 
there's two sets of kilos in the warm up and then a set on the platform. So if we did get into a beggar meet, okay, that you know two of the heavy lifting, um, heavier lifting people in the flights because we're going to break it down and tell you exactly where you're warming up just like Iron Mafia kind of did I, I really like that about it um, but you know my idea is like if we have kilos there for those people cool and like I'm sorry if you're one of the newer people or you know not as strong you're going to use plates it's just how it is yeah. um, I mean it's just easier um, yeah. and you know obviously we, uh, I actually have a lead on some calibrated plates in Lexington but they're pounds but I mean, at the same time, fifty-five pounds is fifty-five pounds. Yeah. You know, I, that's what I lifted on at that Rubber City meet, and it's a ru- Rubber City, River City meet. Um, yeah. And that it, was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, you know, that the pound powerlifting plates, they're not. It's not really that much different than the kilos. Um, yeah. It's just like when you get up to those heavier weights, it can it'll be a little bit. Um, it might be a little bit tighter depending on which ones they got. And how many they have and things like that so um i've seen where people have to throw hundreds on and then they start throwing those on it's yeah, yeah so yeah but yeah, uh I, yeah. that was one thing i never liked was watching like i, I love the rps i like the way that they have their meat structured mm-hmm. and you know the way that they cater to lifters but i hate those god-awful looking green hundred pound plates yeah I, yeah i've never <laughs> enjoyed lifting on plates like that and i i don't um, I I honestly like in my in my like you gonna enjoy loading yeah hundred pound plates per side exactly gets a lot of ups, no yeah no that. one wants to do that yeah and um, I I like the idea of keeping the sport like more in line with the standards and things like that mm-hmm. and the standard for most feds is you know kilo plates on the platform and things like that so. Um, the one thing like you're not going to see an overly fancy production from us of like, you know, maybe one day we'll get some fancier banners or something like that, but like, you're not going to have strobe lights in your face or like anything. Or something if people really want yeah. I mean, we can like, I don't know, dim the lights. I don't know something, <laughs> but, um, you know, and I, I definitely, I don't ever want to be in this dramatic side of, um, of running meets. We're not going to have a bunch. I don't give a shit what anyone else is doing at their meets, running their meets. I don't care. Me and Jordan both are doing this because we, one, love the sport. Two, we want to give back a little bit. And, you know, obviously it's going to be somewhat of a business to us. But we also have other ways that we make money. So we are literally doing this for the lifters and for the sport. And I know a lot of people were worried that when Iron Mafia left that, there wasn't going to be any more real like good mono meets inside of Ohio and Mm -hmm. Kentucky. So we're trying to provide that. So, you know, everything that we're doing is to give back to the sport. It's, we don't need it to be honest. I mean, I've said this multiple times, like we don't need it for me and him to survive on income wise, you know? So, um, doesn't mean you're getting any discounts. I'm not going to do any of our meets just out of principle. Exactly. But I want them to be, to the level of where I would be all right competing there. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, I, I don't care. Everybody else and tell them they squat high. Yeah. And throw a red light. Yeah. So that's the other thing is like, it will be to the standard. Like, I don't care if you're from my gym, Jordan's gym. Like I, I, I've told my lifters, like I don't really want them competing in those as much. Cause we need the help, um, for those meets to run them, especially if it's in 
up here, but mm-hmm. you know, down there, if someone wanted to come down, cool. But if, hey, if you're not lifting the standard, I'll bomb you out, and I do oh, not care. I if you're not lifting the standard, it doesn't matter who's you know on your shirt, your singlet, who you're sponsored by, who you're friends with, how many Instagram followers you have. I don't care. Jordan doesn't care. The rest of the refs won't care. You will get bombed out. So, you know, we're we're going to be very fair. Um, and you know what we see is what we see, and we're going to fuck up. Everyone fucks up. You know, but it's definitely not going to be some Nazi standard of like your ass needs to touch your ankles when the standard <laughs> isn't calling for that. So, uh, one thing that I, I I will say is that. If they do come to our meetings, at least go to the lifters meeting to listen to where we want you to squat to death. Yeah. Because I think people skip that, and then they come to the meet, and they'll be in like the second or third flight, and we'll squat high. And like, well, I was at parallel. It's like, well, if you had been at the meeting, we clearly said this is where death is. Yeah. It, yeah, you're not there, so don't complain. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be um, a process. Like I said, it's a building process. Don't expect. Like, we're not coming out with, like, uh, all kilo plates and crazy shit. But, like, we're putting some money into it, and we're going to provide what's needed to be provided. Um, you know, we're going to try to keep the meats a little bit smaller at first. And um, even in the long run, you know, we haven't talked about an ultimate cap. But there's, you know, if it gets above a certain number, we'll turn meats into maybe a two-day meat or something. But my plan is to not have these meets that run until six o'clock at night, yeah. you know, and clean up and wards on it. No one's getting out of there till eight, and they've been there since seven in the morning. And mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to try to do all that. Yeah. So, so again, and we're not chasing dollars. So it's like I don't need a hundred and fifty lifter meet with five platforms and crazy shit. Like, right. you know, if we ever got to the point where we ran something um, more national or something over a couple of days, sure, but not. Not a local-ish meet. So uh, might see some money come into these things uh, eventually. So, you know, for people looking for money meets, you might see that kind of pop out. Um, we've already been talking to some people, and I know um, one of our bigger sponsors, like, we've been trying to talk about it for years. So mm-hmm. might see some invite meets, things like that. But, um, yeah, and that's kind of our basic plan there. We'll move on to a, another question. So, um this one was um basically i was asking if for your macros and things if you overshoot undershoot one day um you you try to compensate by eating more or less to make it up um you know in the end like throughout your weekly allotted macros think of it more that way Mm -hmm. of course you want to try to eat normal every day and hit your macros every day yeah um, you know, don't save 10,000 calories for the last day cause you want to go gorge on food. But, um, you know, if you do happen to mess up and you're off by 10 grams of carbs, 20 grams of carbs one day or something, that's not a big deal. Just move on to the next day. And, and it is what it is. Yeah. Note that in your book, note that to your coach, note that to, you know, however you're being held accountable. Um, now if you were off and like something happened to where you ate, uh, you know, let's say you were way off and hit 500, 600 calories less for that day. And the, the next day you may be training or something, then, you know, it's, you're probably safe to go ahead and eat a little bit more that next day. But just kind of hold yourself accountable and whatever adherence you're doing, notate that. I was off 20 carbs this day, five fat that day, things like that, and adjust from there. So it, 
if you're having these weekly fluctuations too where you might eat um, you're off constantly throughout the week before you know it that week you were down 2,000 calories uh, 3,000 calories and then the next day you try or the next week you try to up your macros or whatever to make up for that well now you're not getting a good reading for your weight body fat you know whatever your goal kind of is you're not getting a good reading of where you're at overall anyway so um you know i i would say just try to keep it as tight as possible that's what i tell people and um sometimes things come up i get to ask this a lot from clients is like a family party came up i wasn't prepared for it and i ended up you know, eating the the food that was there and went over way, way over on my macros and things. So depending where we're at that next week, I'm probably keeping their macros the same as they were the prior week and saying, okay, you need to adhere better then. Because a gorge of, you know, 3,000, 4,000 calories over your macros, you know, that's going to change some things, mm-hmm. you know, and where's your sodium levels, things like that. There's a lot that goes into that. But um, for me, that's kind of the simplest answer is just keep it as tight as possible. Don't try to you shouldn't need to make up by eating less or more, you know, but if you have to, and it's a training day and you know, you need it, mm-hmm. go ahead, but you need to notate that. So you guys got anything to add to that one? Jordan. Uh, nutrition wise, I just try to stay game on wheelhouse. I've started helping some people with their diets lately, but it's nothing like I'm charging them money for, but mm-hmm. normally the way I do it is I set all my macros up and I know for a fact that when I have, really long like 12 hour work days just the nature of the railroad i'm not going to get all my new like i'm just not going to get all my meals in the day i'll be lucky to get in three that day mm-hmm. just because i'm literally up walking around outside and i barely get enough time to sit down and scarf food down so what i'll try to do is i'll eat before i go to work try to eat once at work and once after and just get as close as i can but say somebody had a rough day or whatever i just tell them to make a note of like how far off they were Mm-hmm. Try to get as close as humanly possible the next day. Like, try to have a perfect. Uh, JP Price supposed to think about this. Like, the more perfect days you have, the easier it becomes to have a perfect day. Yeah. It's just it's the same thing with building a habit. Like, if you get in, I've, I've got a couple guys that lost weight and they're deathly afraid of carbs, just like Jess is. Yeah. Um. So when you cut down, it's like, hey, I need you to eat like 250 grams of carbs today. They're like, oh crap. Uh, I'm going to go back to being, you know, chipmunk chubby cheeks or whatever. And, but you have to, once they get into realizing that their workouts go better, the more carbs they have and all the protein and everything else, then that the, they can get close. Like, obviously, if somebody used to be horribly overweight and they lost a lot of weight and we're trying to get them to eat, a, you know, a relatively decent amount of carbs, they're not going, I know they're not going to get them, uh, hit near the max uh, anywhere soon but if I can keep getting them to add more and finally work back up to that yeah. limit and then go from there yeah. then I'm pretty I'm, I'm happy with that but yeah. and that, that increase it, you know sometimes because I'll, I'll do kind of the same thing with people that come to me and like they're on low carb or whatever um, we don't just jump those you know by 200 grams the first day sometimes sometimes it's a, a 10 gram five gram increase per week you know it's small wins small changes um that way you can monitor better 
um, how their reaction is to those carbs and things. Um, I had the opposite example where a girl just came to me and she was working with a coach that had her, uh, this thing was all over the place. So on her like lower days, she was eating, uh, I believe it was like 325 grams of carbs. Um, yes. might've been more like 350 grams. It was, it was a lot of carbs on her leg days only. And then the other workout days, she was only eating 150. And then her off days, she was eating 90. And I was like, one, what the fuck? Because you're all, like, it's all over the place. It's up and down. There's no baseline here, and it's hard to find that. But two, like, a leg day doesn't account for having, you know, 170 grams more carbs. You know, it, 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 you don't need that much more because it's going to be a squat day. You know, this is an Olympic weightlifter, so it's like where they think leg days require more fuel than the rest of. Yeah, well, and this is an Olympic weightlifter where like their leg days is is every day. So you're adding 170 grams of carbs for her to do four or five sets of squats because they don't do a ton of accessories either. Like they might do like their lifts, maybe like a little bit of RDL and some squats. Mm -hmm. You know. But it's like you're you're adding that much for this, so we got her to a baseline, um, you know, to try to figure things out of where she's at and her goal, um, you know, is to lose weight and things like that. Um, but I started, you know, we backed her off. I I put her at uh, 205 grams of carbs. I was like, oh, you know, and then oh, this was the other crazy thing, is on her carb days she wasn't allowed to eat any fat. There was no no fat allowed, which, uh, wait, what? I was like, one, one, fuck up your hormones. Two, what the fuck? How are you supposed to? I was like, you weren't allowed. It wasn't like 20 grams or 30 grams, 40 grams are on. She's like, no, it was no fat. I'm like, wait, what? And then like, she was allowed. I think like, there was something else where he would do like, she wasn't allowed any fat until her cheat meal, which she could eat anything then. Uh-huh. <laughs> so again, yeah. we're not, we have no balance. We have no structure and like that cheat. I mean, hell I can go find a hundred gram of fat cheat meal easily, yeah. uh-huh. you know? So there was no balance. And then he had her on, um, only a hundred and now mind you, the, you know, she's, um, super heavy. So she, she's like two sixty or so, uh, two sixty four is what I had her at. And like the protein was only at 150. Uh-huh. So you're on very low protein for that you know, body weight and especially even the lean mass that she does actually have, you know, and it's like, um, the carbs are all over the place, the fats all over the place. So I put her like, you know, let's go two Oh five. Let's go one ninety on the protein. So, you know, the protein, um, I think I calculated that out to like 0.8 grams per pound or whatever, which is kind of like the lowest I like to go. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Um, let's just see what this does and stuff. And you know, it's funny because she always talked about like things just weren't consistent wasn't recovering very well you know all these things um and i put her fats at 56 grams in case anyone's curious on that so she's eating uh, 2084 calories and here we are um we are you know a month later and she started at 264 and she checks in today Uh, mind you we haven't made any changes except that and i wanted adherence i wanted to get used to the timing of the meals all that stuff because the the meal timing was a little bit off what she was eating in the morning was a little bit off it's like okay a month later we're down to 257 um so you know she's lost um you know seven pounds over the month and that includes like 
you know holiday meal in there too because yeah. this was before Christmas when we started. And, and yeah, it feels a hell of a lot better. Mm-hmm. Performance is up, you know, recovering a lot better, things like that. So it's like this isn't – don't fall for like the gimmicky like I have to constantly change my macros every two seconds and fluctuate between all these days. Like yes, there is a time and place where I will use – higher a little bit higher day on training day a little bit lower on Mm -hmm. non-training and i will use a day where we go um high high, a high day a moderate day and a low day Mm -hmm. um typically i do the high moderate low with people that are show uh competitors um for obvious reasons of getting they have to become super lean and things like that and there's some other things in there or i've even done there's so many ways to do this like especially the bodybuilding competitors i've done three low days and a high day Mm -hmm. um because Again, we can get all into that about you know the insulin uh, sensitivity, and we can get into it about the leptin levels and all that stuff. But the whole point is like, there's time and place to use these certain tools, but don't think that like your macros need to change constantly every day. Um, it's like the nutritional yeah. version of muscle confusion. Yeah, it's in some of these people, it's crazy the gimmicky shit they come out with. Um, that's why I hate intermittent fasting too. I think I think it's a scam. Like, there's no point to some of these diets and it, i just watch people go on i'm like i watched a guy he was like you know he's trying to lose weight so he's like oh i went on keto and he's bragging about how he lost 20 pounds in a month and all this i'm like bro like you're gonna look at a piece of bread and gain it all back yeah <laughs> yeah or um was he on uh well it's almost the same thing he was on uh he was on uh carnivore or whatever when uh-huh. he's only eating meat it's like he's bra- like i got this big ribeye for dinner and some broccoli Awesome, bro. Good job. Like you, you could get the same place still eating a little bit of pizza once in a while. Mm. That's what people don't understand. They make nutrition so hard, and it's like it doesn't need to be that way. Right. I've had, um, and this is well known. Like you can look at some of my clients that are absolutely shredded, and I've gotten them there, and they've had Reese cups before they go to bed, and they've had ice cream at night. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've got girls. Lindsay's a prime example. Like eats waffles with shit on it every night yeah like your mac now mind you is we got like closer to a show closer to the end of a cut okay hey we have to tone it back on some stuff Mm -hmm. but um and and a lot of that is for water fluctuation and a lot of that it's not like okay Lindsay, if you drop off that ice cream we're gonna just magically drop five pounds because your fat's gonna go away no Right. The water's going to go away. The um, the inflammation, you know, if there is any, because some people are a little bit more inflamed from sugars and things. Like, okay, some of that drops off, mm-hmm. sure. Um, but the point is, once the macros get to a certain point, I'm sorry, I can't let you fill um, 40 carbs, 30 carbs with this food. I need this food to eat yeah. because your carbs are lower. So um, now I'm getting into a nutrition podcast yeah. here. But uh, there's a lot to it, and there's a lot that goes into it. So, um, you know, like Jordan, I took on one of your lifters for nutrition, and it's like, you know, his nutrition is really off. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in, in there um, that I want to fix, but we have to start with the basics, and yeah. we have to get his timing right as much as possible and his just daily habit as much as possible and cooking his food, you know, that would be a great thing. You mm-hmm. know, but, like, baseline. Yeah. We gotta find baseline for four or five, six weeks before we can actually start to, to do anything. And I think a lot of people expect like, oh, if I hire this nutrition coach in twelve weeks, I'm gonna be shredded, because these dumbasses keep po- they, you know they put that out there, of, 
like, oh, look at this transformation. Okay, one, you took a lot out of them. Two, what cycle did they run? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like there's so much gimmicky crap out there. But, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a good example of gimmicky crap here. Hold on. So we can go to uh, Jess's friend, Tori, uh, that we coached, right? Yeah. Okay, if you go from Tori's first meet, uh, so she went from a 920 pound total, or a, a, a 1,058 pound total in um, sleeves, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then the meet that we coached her for, I take back. She went. She went from nine twenty to ten fifty eight. But uh, she squatted nine. There are three nineteen in sleeves, and then she squatted four eighteen in wraps. Well, just as a joke, because I hate when people post stuff like this. I was like, uh, oh, here's one of our clients. We got her, you know, a hundred and like a hundred and thirty eight pound meat PR or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't specify the fact that hey they put on knee wraps and uh you know they're you tweak this here and that there it's just my coaching put 138 pounds on their total company yeah. mm-hmm. that's all that's all you need to know yeah you know where when people are like oh this is so and so they lost x amount of pounds in a month well okay you didn't tell them that they ate like a a raccoon out of a trash can prior to seeing you yeah. and, and putting them on a, a regimented diet. Yeah, that dropped eight pounds right there. Yeah. 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 You know, it's things change. You know, I can tell a difference in my body when I'm on the three days off that I have, Thursday, mm-hmm. Friday, and Saturday, mm-hmm. I get most of my meals in. I look and feel drastically better on Saturday than I did on Tuesday. Yep. Because I've hit all, I literally can hit all of my numbers. Yeah. Like, I'll look at myself yeah. on Saturday in the mirror and I'm like, okay, you don't look like a total slob today. Cool. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's the same thing for me. Like, um, I experienced that this past week. I, um, well, it's probably, yeah, it's this past week. Um, I ate some things that, uh, you know, a little bit heavier, a little bit uh, didn't really, my body didn't really like, let's put it that way. But, um, you know, it's like, so I caused this inflammation, you know, in my gut and like, guts messed up not to mention the increase of calories sodium mm-hmm. all that three days later it was like someone took four inches off of my waist yeah you know what i mean it's like that's the other thing it's like when you're eating like a slob you know you might look a certain way just off the sodium difference you yeah. know and the changes in that i can hold a ton of water when i start eating sodium the difference and this is like if i took a nightly picture versus a morning picture it, oh, you know yeah. especially after a few peas or whatever yeah like when that sodium drops out my body can look two different ways completely you know so um there's a lot of manipulation of things that people don't see and they're not going to tell you that when they post these things either so yeah but anyway now we're getting to nutrition rant so um did you have anything uh that you want to add i really when you talked about like the weekly food bank Mm -hmm. versus uh like the day-to-day thing i think it's really important because they do the same thing when it comes to sleep where they say, you know, look at how much sleep you get for the entire week. On average, you want to get about 56 hours. And that's assuming that you're the type of person who needs eight hours of sleep a night. And that's a, it's a big generalization because everyone's kind of different on what that is. But if you had a couple of days where you're only getting six hours and you can make up for it at another time, or you can have a couple of days where you have more sleep because you know 
let's say like Thursday, Friday, something's going on that you're not going to get very much, you, your body ends up balancing out quite a bit and does a lot better with that. But it's important to look at those details, like you said, where if you bank up you know, thousands of calories for that cheat meal on Saturday, it, there are detriments each day that you're falling behind on that. And just because you happen to make up the macros on Saturday and you look at the week and you're like, look, I hit all my numbers, if you just take the average, yeah. that has a really big effect, like you said, sodium level, water retention. The other one is timing in the same way with sleep. Yeah. Where it's like, hey, I slept for eight hours, but I slept from 3 a.m. to 11 a.m. That's a very different eight hours than if you were to hit what should be your normal circadian rhythm of, let's say, you know, 11 to 7. Mm-hmm. In the same way, we were like, I hit all my macros, but I hit them at the end of the day in one meal. Yeah. Versus I hit them at the right time, you know, before training, after mm-hmm. training, in the morning, etc. And those are kind of extreme examples of, you know, doing it wrong. Yeah. But your body is really, really good at adjusting on those small misses. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, I missed, you know, 10 or 20 grams on something. You don't want to miss it, but you don't have to start getting paranoid that you just ruined your day as you're going through. It's able to adjust pretty well, especially when you've been doing it for quite a while and Mm -hmm. you, you kind of set that standard. Yeah. But taking notes of it, like you mentioned, becomes really important because if you're constantly missing something, and you realize every single, like Jordan was saying with work, like at best, you'll get your three meals. Well, if you're taking notes on that, even basic ones, you'll start to see a pattern yeah. and you can make adjustments. It's like, I'm always falling short on lunches. Well, what can I do to change my yeah. lunch to get that but better? That's like uh, some months back when I, you know, I wasn't recovering as well. I was like, oh, man, okay. Like, so f- for a lot of people that don't understand, like I eat kind of the same things every day in a way. And um, I've been doing this so long like i don't per se track my meals that much anymore Mm -hmm. but i go through phases where i do like if i feel off or i feel like something's different i'll start really tracking again harder Mm -hmm. and um i was feeling off so i went to tracking again and i found that i was under eating protein by a bit you know and um so i started to track for a while make sure i was hitting the protein that i Mm -hmm. wanted to hit um and I accounted for that. Okay, what was I doing wrong? Okay, so when I was making my beef and rice meals, I wasn't putting in as much beef as I assumed I was. Mm-hmm. So that could have affected it. Um, I took out protein shakes, so I didn't account for that as much. You know, yep. things like that. So when I started adding in, okay, I'm have one protein shake most days, unless I eat, you know, steak a couple times that day or something. Mm-hmm. Started to figure it all out again. But it was amazing because, like, in that time of just tightening up the diet let's put it that way because i didn't really change anything i just tightened it up Mm -hmm. made sure my protein was there and things my body started to look different and i started to recover a hell of a lot better absolutely so going forward like if there's days like i don't want to track or you know whatever i don't need to or you know things like that then that's fine you know now i know where my protein goals are Mm -hmm. you know and um again like it's like from doing it for so long i can kind of fluctuate and tell where I'm at and, yeah. I, and I do tend to eat kind of the same like my breakfast burrito every morning is the same fucking thing mm-hmm. every morning you know if I don't eat a breakfast burrito then I um, have a breakfast plate you know of eggs and potatoes and bacon and all and I know how much um, is in that you know so it's you know it's simple when you're cracking three eggs and you know whatever and yep. a piece of bacon the potatoes okay even a couple of potatoes, if I'm off five carbs, 10 carbs, big deal. Right. You know, so, um, and that intuitive eating has kind of helped 
you know, it's, it's still helped me in my training and things. Mm -hmm. So I'm very in tune with my body, as you know, from recovery stuff. Like I'm, I'm very in tune with that, but if I have to track, we'll track, we'll figure it all out. But nine times out of 10, like my tracking, like I'm not very far off of what I'm doing already. So did you have any questions or anything you wanted to get answered? I had one that came in that was asking about low back injuries and I thought it would be good to do with uh, you guys. Um, It was saying coming back from a low back injury, what should I keep in mind? So this is coming from a power lifter. Uh, give background on them. They've been doing it for a couple of years now. Uh, it's not a disc herniation. Um, it, they haven't had it uh, checked out. So I guess you can't confirm that it's not uh, like a herniation or a bulging disc. Um, but the conversation I had is it's a strain in the back that they've dealt with a, a couple different times. Uh, recently happened uh, going through training. And they just wanted some advice, not necessarily on what to do uh, specifically, but from people who have had experience dealing with injuries that are that or similar, what should they keep in mind with training on how they should adjust things? I would start with looking at your bracing and knowing that it's probably not where you think it is because I used to, I literally took conventional pulling out of my arsenal for probably four or five years because I would get to the point where I would do conventional pulls and my lower back would just be, I mean, I, it would feel like I was crippled. I'd have to lay down on the floor and just try to like stretch everything out because it felt like everything was on fire. Uh, but with like a strain or whatever, I would really take a look at where their brake facing is, uh, address their trunk strength, and probably not doing any type of, uh, well, they're probably doing some type of ab work, but not what is going to be beneficial to them. Um, and just trying to stretch that area out, keep it mobile and loose, and getting enough blood flow to it. So, as generic as it sounds, a reverse hyper wouldn't be bad to, um, you know, promote a little bit of blood flow into that area. Just lightweight, a shit ton of reps. You know, uh, most powerlifters' favorite go-to is, "Oh, you got low back problem? That reverse hyper? No, there, there's points in time for it. It's not the end-all, be-all to yeah. lower back problems, but I mean, it'll probably help there." Yeah, and from um, from my experience, you know, I can herniate my disc, so um, you know, I can kind of speak on this one that the like he said the trunk strength and the bracing are two of the biggest things. So you need to increase both of those and make sure that you're well aware of like every time you lift, and I don't care if it's you know one thirty five or or if it's a max out, that your bracing does not change at all. So I brace the same way for the bar all the way up you know on everything that i do um and then as far as like you know trunk strength like i love planks every version of plank uh, weighted planks ab rollouts things like that will help a lot um and then the mobility of it like you still you have to keep the hips mobile you have to keep the um the low back mobile like everything's connected so like I'm not saying just target these things and that's it like obviously keep your whole body as mobile as possible but um, you know, I would start addressing that low back mobility. The hip mobility is major because it's probably coming. You know, again, I'm not a clinician, so don't quote me on it. But it's probably coming somewhere from the hip. Um, it, you know, and even like doing things like um, you know pigeon pose, things like that go a long way. Or like I do kind of a modified one where my bed is like the right height that I can get into that pigeon pose and leave my other leg on the ground and kind of push that leg back a little bit. Mm. And then, you know, my leg is nice and flat. 
and I'm able to even bend forward a little bit mm-hmm. in that pose um, without, like if I try to do it on the ground, it's just like I don't have that mobility to get into that, uh, th- what would that be, a front split? Or, you know what I mean? Like th- to bring your other leg back far enough, I don't have the mobility to really sit into that real well. Yeah. So I, I, you know, and I know there's a modified version where you can use blocks and things and yeah. stuff like that, but this one's just easier for me. Um, or you can lay on your back and get into that same area by bringing the ankle up to the other knee, which is kind of a classic thing. And then yeah. push out on the outer knee. There's one that um, you can put your foot against the wall and kind of do that too, where you bring your ankle to the other knee. I like that single leg glute bridge mm-hmm. variation. Yeah, and then you just let cross. yourself kind of ease into that position mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, so there's a lot of stuff. I think, like like he said, bracing and um, making sure that's right too. A lot of people, they just like take in a quick gasp of air into their chest and they think like, that's bracing. <laughs> no, uh, it's not. It's not it. Making sure it's you know breathing through the diaphragm, making sure the ribs are in the right position. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just take in a huff of air into the belly and have your ribs popping out and your lumbar pushed in like that. That doesn't. That's not doing you anything either. So. Um, I like to tell people that whenever uh, they're doing a brace, just pretend like somebody's trying to punch you in the stomach as far as possible. Yeah. If somebody walking, like I mean, if you're in high school, you're walking out hallway, and somebody tries to punch you in the stomach. What do you do? Yeah. Oh, look. Yeah. So like when I breathe, um, you know, I take in that breath of air, mm-hmm. uh, and I make sure the rib cage is locked down good, and I I call it biting down. And which is what Jordan's talking about, like kind of flexing down on your your abs a little bit. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll tell them like bite down on it after you take in that air, mm-hmm. so that that kind of clicks with people a little bit. Um, but when you bite down on it, that doesn't mean pop your ass out. You'll see this a lot where people will take in that air, everything's good, and then when they they bite down, they push back. They have that interior pelvic tilt. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see that and that already puts you in a bad position so making sure the pelvis is in the right area too whenever you do that and that comes from again everything's so intertwined like if you watch jordan squatter you know i made that video on like from your feet to your hip just talking about that yeah now we add in the upper part of the breathing and the bracing through the upper Mm -hmm. back and um you know the air there's so much that goes into it and it's just a checklist mental checklist through your head of getting all those things right and then once you get it right, it's no longer a checklist. It's just habit, yeah. you know, and that, that's kind of the biggest thing is like in some, and you focus on one or two, if I'm not rooting well, okay, I'm starting to f- feel my feet, feel the ground, you know, lock that in. If I feel like I, my low back is giving, okay, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm doing my brace properly. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm not getting good thoracic extension, I need to make sure that's, you know, and then you start looking at one thing, you know, maybe two things in a session, not breaking it down so much in your head every squat or every deadlift you know so from both of your opinions um i mean granted it's gonna be a little bit different depending on the person and how long they've been doing it but how long do you like to work bracing kind of in general before you feel like someone's comfortably getting that really honing it in you mean like uh, when they first come to us like yeah so if you were to take this person they show up to you and they have a background let's say in powerlifting yeah um you start working with them and you realize like you don't brace for shit. Yeah. Most people. Yeah. Right. How long typically would you say that someone needs to work on that? And it's probably an ongoing process, yeah, but it's before it starts to it's, really get drilled in. It's I've had people who get it, like when they're just standing here, they can brace the perfectly fine, but then you throw a barbell on them 
and it all goes out the window. Yep. So it could take like two to three sessions to get them to brace right with, without the barbell. But then once you put the barbell on, then it's a different ball game, and that's where you know I've had some people who it just clicks naturally, and other people they're like they'll brace, but they're just pushing their stomach forward mm-hmm. and not expanding out because they think that oh I'm just supposed to push my belly button into my belt. Okay, well you're doing that, but you're not doing anything with your obliques and your lower back. Mm-hmm. Like, so you're one fourth of the way there. Um, then you got to try to teach them how to disperse all that pressure in a 360 degree, you know, area. And so I honestly keep people when I put when they put their belt on, I have them keep it like two notches looser than normal up until their working set. That way they've got a little bit of reinforcement and they can know that they're pushing out into the belt on all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know even Joe Sullivan posted that thing lately about that breath belt thing. Um, I, I'm kind of inter- interested in that, and I kind of want to buy one. But it's like, I guess it's like a little belt that goes around your stomach. And I guess you put like little lacrosse balls in it or something, and you pull it tight. And I guess when you breathe out into it, the lacrosse balls kind of dig into certain points. And it's like a, it's, uh, just telling you that you're bracing right. Yeah, give you some kind of, of feedback on it. It's like an easy, I mean, it's, it's simple enough, but... You know, most people, I mean, because during, during your normal day, how, how often do you think about bracing, right? Like nine out of ten times, yeah. most people's problem is we focus on bracing for the one to two hours we're in a gym. But then, you know, we've got 22 hours left in the day where we're just walking around probably ribs flared and breathing up into our chest and doing all this other mm-hmm. shit that's not feeding into the, you know, it's just reinforcing bad habits. And then you go in there for an hour and a half or two and you're trying to, create those those good habits again and it's yeah it's weird weird saying that though because like i i think it was probably like a year ago i told Lindsay that i'm like have you ever noticed that you breathe like because i was doing i'm like you ever notice like that you breathe like you're about to take a squat or something just Mm -hmm. when you're kind of normal breathing in a way like you start to learn how to like you're not breathing like he said up into your chest as much anymore so it's it's kind of weird and it's odd, but it like does translate. Um, but I, th- I think what he said good is like filling out all spaces. A lot of people don't get that they'll just blow out their belly instead of understanding like when you do this like, and especially if let's say you're squatting and you take that brace and you fill all points out, mm-hmm. it literally feels like it should feel like in the bottom that someone just like threw you back up it, like. It, you should feel like you're so tight that the spring is loaded and you're firing back yeah. up. But then at the same time, like, um, I guess a good analogy would be like, you know, if you had a, um, we all used to get in like inner tubes, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a kid and like you're jumping in the pool and all that stuff. So like that inner tube is kind of like your buoyancy thing, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like when you fill that out, like that is now like your buoyancy above water, let's say it. That's mm-hmm. what's going to bring you back up if some, okay. if someone could submerge you. That's what's going to bring you back up. So you'd want to like um, when you're squatting, like that's how it should kind of feel. It's kind of hard to explain until someone actually like experiences it. It clicks, yeah. but like when you're hitting all points of your belt, you feel so connected to everything in your body, like with your hips and into the bar and all that. It's it's very hard to explain until you actually experience yourself firing out of the hole mm-hmm. in the how strong you are in the bottom from that position. So 
Because my background with diaphragmatic breathing and learning all of that actually came from when I was in college, um, from taking these vocal classes that we spent, you know, a couple semesters and we would work with partners and we'd learn diaphragm breathing, but it didn't occur to me on how that translated over to athletics and especially to powerlifting. And I mean, that was 14, 15 years ago. So it's something that like I've carried on and continued doing. And so, like you said, like, that's just habit. That's how I breathe. And what I've learned from you know, working with you and watching some of your clients and the things that you've noted on is that you forget that that's not normal. Mm-hmm. Like that's not a typical breath for people. But I wanted to ask this question in particular because from a practitioner standpoint, it's easy to say, hey, this is how long it's gonna take for the tissue to heal. Uh, here are some exercises you can do in order to help reinforce that. Here are some things that we can do to speed up that process. But until you have a coach watch and say, this is what is potentially aggravating it over and over again, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what the rehab or the recovery process is because you're just putting band-aids on something. And if it has to do with learning the technique uh, for example, a bracing in this case, how long does that athlete has to uh, then anticipate learning something in addition to doing the rehab or the recovery before that starts to go away? I think a lot of people don't think about that side of it, don't cover that aspect. Mm-hmm. It's it's a quick kind of a example for for when you're breathing too. I, uh, if you have like a training partner or something, it's real simple. Like he said, you keep your belt like a notch or two open mm-hmm. and have your training partner stick their finger inside of your belt between, you know, each point, mm-hmm. you know, from the, let's call it in your abdomen to the oblique, to the side, to the back. And you should be able to crush their finger between your body and the belt. Mm-hmm. Like, or you know what I mean? Not break their finger, obviously, but right. you know what I'm saying? Like they should be able to compress into it and feel that pressure. And if you're missing a point, then your training partner can tell you that like, no, I, I don't feel anything there. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt more pressure through this point than this point, And that's, that kind of can help you too. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's pretty much it on questions today. So, um, let Jordan kind of where can people find you I know you got you got a gym page you got your personal page um, you know Instagram whatever go ahead and and shout it all out do we lose him uh, we lost the connection well Jordan's not allowed, not allowed to announce himself apparently <laughs> on this podcast and where you can find him we'll see if he comes back in a second here well I'll, I'll shout him out <laughs> you can find Jordan's personal page at um, dadbod220 on Instagram uh, his gym is Bad Dad uh, Barbell, uh, which I believe is their Instagram as well. Um, they're down there in Kentucky, so if you're ever in Kentucky, uh, look up Bad Dad Barbell. They're in uh, Georgetown area. Uh, good gym to go train at. We've been there a couple times. Um, as far as announcements go on our end, uh, not much coming up. So, um, yeah, as far as... You know, as podcast goes, uh, we'll like to thank Jordan for coming on, even though he can't hear us anymore. <laughs> He's disconnected, but uh, thank you for giving up your time and, and coming on. Um, like I said, that is one of the most well-rounded people in the sport. Um, you know, got a lot of things going for him with the gym and everything else. And he's someone that lives it, works a hard job, has kids, all that stuff. Um, but he puts his time in and, and he's earned that total. So um, that's about it for today. Unless you got anything to add? Nope. All right. Well, that's it. I know it was a long episode, but hopefully there was a lot of knowledge in there. All right, we'll see you later. Have a good one.